Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Able, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, hone your message, and make an impact on the world. This episode is brought to you by the phrase intellectual property, which is defined by the World Intellectual Property Organization as creations of the mind, such as inventions, literary and artistic works, designs and symbols, names and images used in commerce. Also known as IP, intellectual property is protected in law by, for example, patents, copyright, and trademarks, which enable people to earn recognition or financial benefit from what they invent or create. By striking the right balance between the interests of innovators and the wider public interest, the IP system aims to foster an environment in which creativity and innovation can flourish. Here to discuss and educate is Francesca Witzberg, a legal strategist and intellectual property expert representing top businesses, brands, entrepreneurs, and celebrities. As partner at the nationally ranked IP firm Loza & Loza, Francesca and her team lead the way toward monetizing and establishing legal protections so you can focus on what matters most, managing your scalable, profitable, and protected business. I am all ears for this and cannot lie. I think it's just, I've booked, you know, an hour of free legal advice. So welcome, Francesca. I, I heart you already. Yes, Barbara, thank you so much. And you know what? Intellectual property is the word of the year. I started this year with an article about that. If you think about the Kardashians, Apple, uh, Tesla, these are all brands that utilize their intellectual property. That's how people build businesses. It's how coaches make money. It's how entrepreneurs really grow and build fortunes. So I'm really excited to talk all things IP today. Wow, even that was uh, eye-opening. So I, just stepping back one second, I just wanna confirm that the definition I read at the beginning is correct or do you position it in any other way or describe intellectual property to your clients differently? Yeah, I try it. You know, here's what I say. Intellectual property refers to creations of the mind. It's really what it is. So these are your brand names, your slogans, your catchphrases, your content, your photos, videos. Barbara, this podcast. So it's all uh, things that we've created that have um, that have actual value in them and what i like to do is look at a client's business and see exactly what it is that they have that's intellectual property and how to protect it and then at the end of my of my sessions clients are like oh my gosh i can't believe i have all of this and it's just a really cool thing to to do already this is helpful what are the biggest misconceptions about ip so I think that there are three major myths when it comes to businesses and with IP. So the first is people say, I don't, I don't really need to trademark my name or I don't need to register my name as a trademark. Technically, that is correct. In the United States, rights are based on use. So you have, a, you have rights to your trademark just by simply selling your goods and services under that brand. However, here's where the myth comes into play, or at least the misconception. Those rights are super, super limited. They are literally limited to the geographic region where you use the mark. 
I have no idea what that means. Okay. And I am a trademark attorney. <laughs> so what happens is then businesses fight over that you would have to prove where your rights are. And that should raise a red flag for anyone saying like, wait, I'm an online business. What does that mean? Where geographic location? Is it Texas? Is it New York? That's the question that gets litigated. Whenever you have a gray area of the law and it's not concrete, that's where litigators really profit. They fight over this stuff, which is expensive. It's also emotionally draining. So here's how to, to try to get around that, okay? So you file and register your names. And by doing so, you, the government gives you a presumption of rights in all 50 states. So it basically says you have a certificate. We're going to tell you that you have rights in all 50 states. We're not going to, you know, pick and choose the states. It's just you get rights in the whole country. That still leaves wiggle room for someone to say, you know, what, you're not actually using all over the US, but it's much harder for someone. They'd have to basically pick a really expensive fight with you and have a really good reason to do it. So register your names, get protection in all 50 states, really, um, and it'll save you a lot of time and money and anxiety if someone starts using in a different state and you're like, oh my gosh, can they actually do that? And sometimes the answer is they, they can without a registration. Just to confirm for my listeners, you are in fact saying that simply buying your domain name is not enough. Oh my gosh, absolutely not. That doesn't even give you any trademark rights. So at least, you know, we said without a registration, you have trademark rights just by using it. You need to actually make real sales. You need to actually sell and use the name. Having a domain name is not a trademark. And it's that, I guess I need to add that to my list of myths. That's totally number one. People think, people think, oh, I got the domain name or I did my company name. I have the LLC. Those are not trademarks. Gotcha. I also think people might think I got a logo and I'm using it and that might be enough. Okay. Yeah. So this is yeah. eye-opening. Um, I think you said there were three. So what are the other misconceptions yes. on your list? Okay. And then copy, it's usually with copyrights. It comes down to, well, mm. I'm just, you know, creating content and if, and when someone starts stealing my stuff or knocking me off, I can just deal with it then without a registration. And unfortunately this, you know, the Supreme court, they rarely, they're dealing with big stuff, right? They rarely talk about IP. And they actually commented and made it very clear that you need a registration in order to enforce your rights. So basically, if someone's knocking off your stuff, you could send them a letter to tell them to stop. But without a copyright registration, it's like waving an empty gun. You have no ammunition. It's just an empty threat. So you really should begin to think about how do I use copyright to protect myself? And then the third is I don't need a written contract. So yes, absolutely. Uh, you don't need to have it in writing, but guess what? If it's not in writing, there's still there, there could still be a legally binding agreement. And then when things go wrong, the question is, what the heck did you guys agree to? So again, when there's that question, when you don't know, I want everyone to think dollar signs, expensive litigation, and it's just very emotionally draining and clients kick themselves because it's cost you, you know, a couple, just a small fraction of a, of a, of the price to get your contracts in place, get your trademarks in place, get your copyrights in place versus having to deal with 
a nightmare situation that unfortunately happens too often. I'm sure everyone watching this has either, unfortunately, you've either experienced it yourself or you've you know someone who's went through a case where someone has been knocking off their brand or stealing their content and it's not fun and if you don't have those very basic protections up front it's very expensive and emotionally draining without any guarantee that you're actually going to get your stuff back yes i want to actually sit one sec because you know coming up in the business i worked as an assistant in a talent agency so a lot of this stuff and i also worked in music management so one when it comes to the agreement side this is just for anybody to get in the habit of doing this regardless of where you are in life is one doing notes at the end of the day notes to self right so you can keep memos and track of that but also to recap conversations even by email with other people i just want to confirm my understanding of the conversation that we had yes and that's great because you know you're clarifying what the terms are but it's still not a contract you know you could you could try to submit emails um it it depends you know of course like everything it depends but truly it, there's there's magic language that a court will look for to see if there's a legally binding agreement because you can have back and forth but then a week later you may change so if you just show one email who knows that email could have been something that you guys changed. That's oh, why I agree with that. I actually just want to put that out there as like a getting in the habit, like a daily habit with yes. whether you're talking about anything, whether you need a contract or not, even interdepartmentally getting in the habit of clarifying. Yes. I totally agree with that. Just, just getting cl clarity. And you know what, like Barbara, thank you for saying that word because that's what contracts do. People get afraid because they're like, oh, I don't want to send this to a partner and have them freak out. But literally the purpose of the contract is to set out clear expectations between both parties to prevent problems. Okay, I want to sit with what you just said, which is awesome and powerful because in my work as a coach, it's so, so much around strategy and mindset and reframing. So similarly, I had an episode where we reclaimed the notion of feedback because a lot of times people think feedback is negative when it's not, it's really helpful. But what you just said is this idea that a contract and anything to do with legal means two opposing sides yelling at each other, fighting, and that it's inherently contentious. And what you just said, if I heard you correctly, was the why we do that is to prevent us getting to contentious. Absolutely. Because that's what contracts do. It forces the parties to really sit and think, what exactly do we want? What, do you, what are you going to do in exchange for this purchase price, for in exchange for this amount of money? And when are you going to do it for me? And how are you going to do it for me? And what's the purpose? Why are we doing this? It's really, you know, it's so funny, like the who, what, when, where, why. It applies in a lot of contexts, but it also really applies to contracts. So if you sit down and really go through that list, who am I entering into the contract with? Why are we entering into this? Um, when are we getting the things? What are we getting? And there was probably another one, <laughs> but it really is going through that list and just being very clear. And then, you know, having a lawyer actually draft it is important because you may have business terms written out, but there's a lot of legal mm. contract language, you know, that people say there's this phrase boilerplate, like, oh, it's just boilerplate. It's not. That, that's those are literal legal terms where if you sign something, you could be giving away your IP or forever. I mean, look at the designer 
Haley Page, or formerly known as Haley Page. She literally signed a bad contract when she was in her 20s without a lawyer and lost the right to use her name for um, wedding design services. So it's very important to not glaze over that stuff. Think about the business terms, what you want the business terms to say, but then have an attorney really draft the legal terms with you because it could really come back and bite you. I'm really sitting with the idea that just you can change your energy around this. All of this is really important. You can go into it with a sort of a negative Nelly attitude or you can go into this is awesome. This is helping me grow my business. I'm delighted we're negotiating and we can just completely change our energy. This is fantastic and blowing my mind. I want to go back to the notion now of copyright for a second. Yes. Because again, you're the expert, but what little I know and I remember, it's like you can't copyright the title of the song. You can't copyright a a recipe. So, and the reason I bring this up is again, coming from um, my years at VH1 and doing program and talent development, that th there's a difference between an idea and the execution. Yes. Right. And so there are a lot of, so back in my day, rock and roll cooking show was everybody and their brother thought that they had the concept for rock and roll cooking show. I'm like, that's not an idea. That's just like a giant bucket or like a category, but there's nothing there. And you, you got to, and 17 people could have the exact same idea. And it's the difference is going to come down to what people say, how it's executed, all sorts of other details. So that I just want to talk about if you explain like, because people get hung up on what's a, what you can copyright and what you can't. And then that causes stuff, which also leads me to the second part of my question, apologies for stacking, is our NDAs worth anything? Here's, here's how I'd like to, to answer that. Okay. So I usually tell clients there's, there's three pieces to IP protection. One is ensuring that you actually own it and protect it. So that's sitting with an attorney, having them look at, and a lot of lawyers actually don't do this. And if you're a lawyer, you should start doing this. I do something that's called an IP audit and playbook where I tell the client, give me your, give me your, give me access to your business. I want to see your business plans. I want to see the websites. I want to see um, client content. If you have a membership site, let me actually look at it, see, and let's see, and you should see and know what assets you have and what you can actually protect and what's not protected. And then let's come up with a, let's come up with a protection plan. So that's the first step is really figuring out what IP you have, what's important, and then getting it protected because you want to make sure you actually own it and don't just assume that you can't protect something. A lot of clients end up doing that and then they come to me later and now we're scrambling to get stuff registered. So just it's better to work with a lawyer early and figure out, okay, this is my IP, let's protect it. So that's the first piece. The second then is having contracts to protect that IP. So anytime you're hiring someone or they're hiring you to perform, you know, some sort of services or they're getting access to your content, then that is when you have to have a contract to set the terms and set expectations in a positive way of what exactly they're getting and what they're not and what they can and can't do with whatever it is that you're offering them. And then the third piece is enforcing. So this is, and it's up to you. Like, like Barbara, I have clients that they want their stuff. They would love for people to just use it as much as possible and um, take it and integrate it. And they don't mind that, okay? So that is up to them. However, what I remind them is that if you don't do steps one and two, you could actually lose 
the rights to what you've created. If you just let everyone go out and you're not doing any enforcement and you're just, you know, letting other people use it, the law, there, this is actually the law. The law will say that you no longer are the owner because you've taken no actions to protect or enforce or set terms on how they can use it. And so you've given it up and it's in the public domain. And that's the worst case scenario because you could have really uh, lost your business at that point. So for people like that who still want to, you know, you, let other people use it, still have to protect, still have to have contracts. And then the enforcement piece is up to you. Do you wanna be a little bit more aggressive? Do you wanna send demand letters? That strategy is up to you. Wow. You know, I'm remembering this is my own sort of neighborhood example, but someone opened in Brooklyn a bagel shop called F-Line Bagels and the MTA sued them and shut them down. Wow. And, and everybody in the neighborhood was like, that's kind of harsh MTA. But I, from your point of view, I can kind of see why. I want to ask you just um, before we go back to NDAs. Yes. What's a friendly version of that? I guess I'm saying, cause it's like, I'm a solopreneur and I get what you're saying. Cause you kind of described a squatter's rights thing. It's just yes. if you let people squat in your, in your, in your property, you, you're giving it away. But is there a way to be nice about it? Like, hey, I noticed you're doing this. I, that The meme was really, really cute. If you're going to use it, we request this. Yes. So, okay. You've protected it. You have basic, you have basic contracts either on your website, but now someone is using that. We're in that third category, that enforcement where you're looking, you're making sure no one's using your stuff, or you're just watching to see how people are using your stuff. Um, at that point, yes, this is where like the enforcement strategy comes in. And I work with clients and I say, look, how aggressive do you want to be? And it's, it's, it's a case by case, right? Because you could really set a bad tone if you send a, like a fire and brimstone aggressive demand letter to like a client or a potential client that's it may it may actually have a bad taste in their mouth if you know especially if they didn't mean it if it was like harmless or just trying to be nice and share your stuff no i, I would not send that aggressive letter because what happens sometimes is they'll post it they'll they'll show the demand letter or they'll show your dm that's nasty so it's figuring out the right strategy. Then there are times where someone is knocking you off and it's obnoxious and they're taking money away from you because they're stealing clients. So that may be a time where you do send a more aggressive letter. It really comes down to strategy. And also like if you are, I tell my clients, you know, get your PR people involved sometimes. Think about it. If it's going to be that big, I have, we have situations where it is major um, and we do need to do a press release or we do need to send a notice, public notice, then like have your lawyers work with PR and just come up with the strategy. On that note, you put out great content yourself. Thank you. So um, you're not only an attorney, you're a content creator. And sidebar, I was always curious if you catch yourself going, oh, I've got to do this for me. But one of the things I thought was interesting, a recent post I thought was great, was the idea that Kris Jenner has copy uh, has a copyright on Momager. Oh, it's, yeah, she's a trademark. Trademark on it, sorry. First of all, you had a great point in relative to everything we're talking about. It's just how important trademarking is to the Kardashian-Jenner business strategy, Empire. Or, yeah, global domination. So I was like, oh, duly noted. But two, and I was curious is because that's a term I see all over the place. So are, do they have, you know, a, an army of, of lawyers and Google alerts saying, 
Uh, the New York Times just used this to describe someone else. We need to send a note. Oh, somebody's using it to describe themselves on their their website or their business. It's like yeah, it's in that third category, right? Mm-hmm. So she's protected it. She probably has contracts with her partners about, but then it's the enforcement category. So they need to make a decision. Chris, how aggressive these people are using it. Do we care? They have to make it. There's a business decision that goes behind it. This is what any brand has to deal with, you know, and it all almost becomes a game of whack-a-mole. Think about how many counterfeit, you know, Prada bags or how people are using Prada all over the place wrongly. Like there has to be a business decision to make on how aggressive do we want to be and what's the strategy. So if she's just doesn't care and lets other people use it, you know, that may be a business decision, but she also has the legal right with her trademark registration to be aggressive and stop other people from using it. When does that kick in? Is it only if somebody's making money off of it? So common names, you can trademark. Like literally the biggest tech company in the world is Apple, okay? Like the most common word is trademarked. It's because though, the way that they're using it, they're selling computers. They're not selling apples that we eat. Right. So those are different types of trademarks. But I have clients that'll come to me and say, oh, I never knew that I could trademark this. I never never knew. So don't assume. I, I just posted a video on this today, Barbara, about this, is that don't assume that you can't protect your, your names um, if you think they're too descriptive or commonplace. If it's very important to you, there's absolutely strategies to trademark. The problem, though, is that if it's something that's super common and um, it may be hard to protect, but I don't tell clients, no, it's up to them. They have to make the business decision. If it's something super important to them, let's come up with a strategy. Um, but if it's not that important, you know, you may spend a ton of money trying to protect something and send demand letters, getting people to stop. Uh, it may not be worth it to them. So it's figuring out like what names are your babies that you really want to protect. Um, the Kardashians have hundreds and hundreds of trademark filings and, and, and trademark registrations. If you go on my TikTok at IP Lawyer Francesca, like Barbara, this, my, all of my Kardashian videos go viral. Like people and to your point it's it's because they're interesting and they're building empires i just worry that like i'm gonna pick up a fork one day and it's like nope they own that now too that's like the the more philosophical question right is and also a very relevant one how far do we go to trademark things but also are we running out of trademark real estate Mm. and i talk about this a lot this concept of trademark real estate because you know, you how many people try to start a business and then get the .com and the .com's taken? So then they just either add a word or they change a letter or they get like a .io or something else. You cannot do that with trademarks. You can't just take someone's name that's registered and then add something at the end or add an S or change the F to a PH. Under the law, they could be considered legally identical and you could get sued. So the way that i'm telling clients is you know in this online entrepreneurial world like post covid even i'm seeing more and more people quit their jobs and start or even start side businesses protect your names 
see if that name one is available before you just slap it on a product and start selling because you you could get sued and saying whoops i didn't know is not an it's not an excuse you could owe a ton of money just by not doing a quick trademark search and then protect it because trademark real estate is limited and uh, you know there is that concept of whether it's something I want to invest in or not, but when in doubt, and if it's something that's super important to you, I, I would say go for it. Protect your names. Out of curiosity, is a trademark search something that a civilian can do, or is that something only an attorney would have access to that information? Okay, great question. So technically, the way I talk about trademark search is with an attorney. So however, there are things that every business can and should be doing before working with an attorney. Check USPTO.gov, okay? Just put the name in. Do different variations because their search is, it literally only picks up the exact name. So I was saying that like, if you change the F to a PH or if any other like close variant, uh, that's not gonna get picked up. So that's not a, that's not a search that you're doing on your own. You're not doing a search. You're just kind of checking to see if someone has the exact name. Then you could look on Google, but of course, Google only shows six, the first page shows like six or seven websites. Like that's not gonna do it, but at least it'll give you an idea if there's like one major person. And then check Facebook, check Instagram. If things look good, that's when you go to an attorney to confirm. Because for example, my firm, we use a, a vendor that has a special software and I'm pulling up 200 hits that could be close variations. And I have to do legal analysis to see, do I think that under the law, are they closely similar? Um, or would a, would a court consider them to be so similar? And then I give a risk, a risk assessment and the business decides, is it too risky? Or do we want to maybe get permission to use it? Do we want to go in a different direction? Do we want to change the name? There's a ton of strategy that goes in with that search. It's not just, you know, you pay a lawyer, you get an opinion and file. It really is, it's more like your lawyer is going to, at least what I do is I give strategy. I'll figure out if someone really wants something, let's come up with options and see what we can do. Or if it's really early and they want to do other names, you know, you'd find another name. The worst case scenario would be not doing a search, spending 100K on a digital or physical product and finding out six months later that you need to now do, redo your whole branding, your whole website, all your videos, or get rid of that inventory that's sitting in a warehouse. It, it's, it is a nightmare. It is emotionally expensive and it's obviously financially expensive when a trademark search like costs a couple hundred dollars. This is a great point because there are examples if you Google, you know, big Hollywood examples. It doesn't just happen to, you know, naive, naive folks like me, which by the way, I, I, full disclosure, I've, I've never done a podcast where I took so many notes in real time. I'm just like <laughs> scribbling, hoping I don't look distracted. Okay, this has been amazing. So I do want to go back to the question of a non-disclosure agreement. Yes. Because I get asked to sign them a lot. I'm happy to when, you know, clients come to me and I may be talking about proprietary information with them. So I completely understand. But on the other hand, I wonder if sometimes people think that they're protecting them in ways I don't I don't know because I didn't even know if that information was in fact proprietary. I mean, that's what I was getting at is if the legal definitions or or what an NDA actually protects. 
Yeah. Okay. So it, it relates back to those three things that I first, you know, set the stage for. So it's protecting and then it's having your contracts and then the enforcement. So the second, now we're in the second category when it comes to your contracts, there is a business t- timeline, if you will. So when you begin your business and you start either soliciting clients or if think of, think of it as pre-contract stage. Okay, you haven't been hired yet or you haven't hired anyone yet, but you want to have a conversation with a a potential partner or potential collaboration or you want to explore hiring someone or having someone hire you. That's when an NDA comes into play. Mm -hmm. It's a pre-contract contract. So it gives both parties, you know, security so that you're not in a situation where you are nervous to really share your intellectual property or any um, protected information. So that's why we get it. And then now I'll answer your question is like, well, what does it protect? Because maybe someone doesn't have proprietary confidential information. I take the position that it's better to have a contract, even if there's a little bit of proprietary info, then God forbid, you know, you accidentally disclosing a potential patent idea to someone not having an NDA under the law, you you may have just lost your rights to get a patent because you disclosed it without protecting it with an NDA. So an NDA is, and you know, Barbara, like I try to talk in very high level, like easy to understand because I want to educate entrepreneurs. You obviously, un- you have a great grasp on intellectual property. I want every business owner to. So I just want everyone to think there are very basic things that you can have in your business, in your legal arsenal. And an NDA is absolutely one of them. Having, um, you know, someone sign and the test is, you know, are you going to have a discussion with them about something that if they took your, took what you said, you would be devastated if you lost it, or you would be devastated if they um, somehow took it and did it on their own. That is the trigger to have an, an NDA. Mm, I am, I can't thank you enough. I've gotten so much out of this conversation, <laughs> but, but also because in addition to the factual information that you shared, there's a lot again around the mindset of one, the energy we bring to the negotiation process is up to us. And so we can go in feeling really positive and empowered, which is a wonderful shift Two, you keep saying this, don't assume anything, ask better questions. So that's on all of us to just ask like, um, and sometimes it's our own reframe. It's like, what don't I know? Or um, what kind of help do I need? Who should I ask about this? Any number of ways that we ask ourselves questions to move us ourselves forward. And the other thing too, when it got down to that third phase is is the question around intent. And again, how do we want to show up? Asking, you know, what's what's the purpose? And as I would say from the coaching side, you know, is the, and then what? What is the result I want from this? And that's always important that we're always asking ourselves, right? Yeah. What's what's the outcome that I want? And I'm not like every other lawyer. And I've kind of realized that. And I'm sharing this too, because I am an advocate in the legal industry to have lawyers bluntly be more practical and really take the time to educate their clients because you can't, I can't be sitting next to my client when they're coming up with their creations, when they're designing the website, you know, I wish I could, but I can't. So what I try to do, Barbara, is instead of them having the burden on them, because these are very business, you know, everyone's busy person. 
rather than requiring the client to know the questions to ask, I do that audit. I start with that audit and playbook where we look at everything. And then that's where we have the discussion on, okay, you got a ton of IP. What's the most important? Let's figure it out together. What's your, what's your baby? What content is your biggest revenue maker? Let's come up with a strategy to protect that. And then, you know, I'll work with them too. What's the budget? Because you shouldn't, you know, I don't think you should be spending all of your budget on legal, obviously. Like there's, you have to pay people and other things, but at least we have to figure out what percentage to allocate to it. Because if you are listening to this and you've allocated 0%, that is a major problem. And what will happen, unfortunately, is God forbid, it's, you know, ask yourself, are you just waiting for a problem to come? In which case you may be allocating 50% or more of your budget for the year towards fighting when instead you could have maybe allocated 2% to just doing your basic protections and being done with it. You're amazing. Where can people find you? People can find me on Instagram. I'm at the trademark attorney. And also I have all of my fun uh, TikToks on IP lawyer Francesca. And you have a website. And I have a website, francescawitzberg.com. This is fantastic. I hope you will come back. I definitely will. There's more to learn here. (laughs) And I want to thank you for listening to Camera Ready and Able. If you're interested in one-on-one media communications or brainstorming training for you or your team, please shoot me a note and please be sure to visit ableintermedia.com and download my free ebook, 12 Tips for Success on Camera. And as always, hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. 